Hi, I'm Jackie Goddard and this is Power to Speak, the podcast, where I talk to a mix of creatives, thought leaders, authors, in fact, anyone with an interesting and inspiring story to tell. How did they get here? What have they learned? And how can their journey help us mere mortals? In this episode, I talk to musical director and conductor Jay Alexander. If you like musical theatre, you won't want to miss this. I don't think there's been a musical either on Broadway or in the West End in the last 40 years that Jay hasn't worked on. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the Power to Speak podcast, Jay Alexander, West End musical director. And yeah, you are Mr. West End, aren't you, really? I mean, going back to Cats, you you started... Well before Cats. Funny enough, I watched the Cats movie uh, on the, I was on a ship the other day, but we can talk about that. But I started watching, it's so different to the show, it's hard to to take in. But um, yes, Cats, I did it. I remember being asked to do it. I did the eighth year and the ninth year when I was, because I'd just done Follies at the Shaftesbury Theatre with Diana Rigg, Millicent Martin, Julie McKenzie, Eartha Kitt. Wow. It was like a host of stars. And then Cameron McIntosh asked me to go and do Cats. And I went, oh, my gosh, I've been running for years. It's an old pussy, dear. Um, <laughs> but, it was like, it was, it, but I went to see it. I went, I'm going to do this. They said six months and I stayed for two years. Wow. Yeah. But it, my, my, I started in the West End, really, I suppose, in 1980, 82, 83, 84, you know, and the, it sort of went from there. But it, it's it's. It's a weird thing getting into the West End because people often ask me, how do I become a musical director? And I said, well, there's no actual way that you can become a musical director. You just work your way through. Um, If you're a rehearsal pianist and then you get on with people and you get on with actors and then you become someone's assistant. If someone sees you as fit to be that, then you become an assistant. And I was very lucky when I was 22. Uh, I was asked to be musical director of Greece at the Haymarket Theatre in Leicester. Now, the Haymarket in Leicester is a, was a great place for um, launching shows because they had a great production team there. They could build all the sets, had wonderful designers, great directors wanted to work there, actors wanted to work there. So that year I did Greece, and in the title role, playing Sandy, was none other than Denise Welch. Now, <laughs> Denise Welch and I, I, she laughs now, loose women, or she does now, but uh, Denise was Sandy and uh, uh, David Easter was Danny and they said to us on the first day of rehearsal, by the way, I don't know whether you know this because they were cast completely separately, but we're engaged to be married. Wow. I know. <laughs> A marriage that actually didn't go too well <laughs> but she says now I can't believe I was cast as Sandy but yes she was and a lot of my friends were in it some of my Welsh friends Gareth Snook was in it who does loads of West End shows he's also from my I'm from a place called Port Talbot by the way in South Wales now this town is a, an industrial town but right on the sea so we were brought up with the sand sort of one foot down in our garden was sand and but it was a great place to be brought up and it, Richard Burton came from there Anthony Hopkins, Michael Sheen, wow. and then others like myself, Di Botcher, who, uh, who's a wonderful actress who has been in so many television shows, uh, including, is it Stella? Yeah, yeah, Stella. Um, just these people, there were loads of us that went to London in 1979 as students or some before, because we were part of the West Glamorgan County Youth Theatre. And 
we all met and, and it was just a, a few years of people that decided to go into the business and train. And I didn't know what to do with my career. I was thinking, what do I do? There's no careers advisor could tell me as an 18 year old, because I played the piano and I've been playing the piano from the age of six and I loved it. And I, no one had to ask me, I asked my mother for a piano when I was six and she fobbed me off. And then six and a half, I said, oh, please, mommy, can I have a piano? I wanted a piano all of my life. And she went, oh my goodness. Alan, it's my dad, he said, Jesus has spoken. That boy's having a piano. She was a devout Catholic. So I got a piano, took to it like a duck to water. And then on a midnight mass, when I was 11, I went with my mother because she was singing in the choir. And uh, the organist husband had had a heart attack, sadly. And so she couldn't play for the Christmas midnight mass. And no Christmas carols, there'd be no music. And they said, can Jay play? And my mother said, we can only play the piano. We can just play it like a piano. And so I did, and I played the Christmas carols because I knew them all. I was a very confident 11-year-old. So then I started learning the organ then. I became the church organist. And then my mother thought, there's money in this, <laughs> in the local working men's clubs. So she got me to play when I was 12, I think I was. I played for half an hour before bingo for a pound, one pound. <laughs> And then half an hour before the second half of while the break was on to give me confidence. And then by the time I was 14, I was playing three nights a week in clubs, earning eight pounds a night. And then it developed, my voice developed. And then I was singing and I was, I had my own act by the time I was 16, 17. And in 1978, I was earning 200 pounds a week in the working men's clubs. That's so the... It's a lot of money now. I can't even do that now, sometimes <laughs> because of the blinking pandemic. But it was, my father was a crane driver and my mum worked in a betting shop settling the bets. She was very good with maths and she did it without calculators. It was then. But so my father thought, why are you, I wanted to go away to university. And my father said, now look, boy, you've got a good job down here. You're earning a blinking fortune. And so I said, oh, dad, I want to go away. So. I didn't want to be an actor, although I had a good singing voice and I could act. Um, I thought I want to be a director. That's what I've done. I had directed a few, you know, school things and local things and a pantomime I directed and played with a twanky. But <laughs> I literally, I decided to go to the Central School of Speech and Drama. So I did a stage management and directing course. And when I was there, I was ending up doing music for everything. So they realized I was, I was a good pianist and I, I could sight read. That's the main thing is I could sight read music, easy. And then I had my first job at the Haymarket Theatre in Leicester in 1981 as an assistant stage manager, an ASM. Within three months of my job there, they thought this, this boy, we need him. There's there a musical happening in the studio theatre called Shylock, a rock opera of the Merchant of Venice. And I auditioned and I got the role of assistant musical director and my life changed. And I remember then, because this is talking about, you know, the financial thing. I was on 77 pounds a week and I'd gone from 200 pounds a week to nothing as a student, <laughs> obviously. And then I went from 77 pounds a week to 110 pounds a week as an assistant with my job. And I then left the Haymarket, left my contract and things started to happen. So in 1982, I was musical director of the Manchester Library Theatre Company. I was 21 years old, it's like 22. And then Reese happened. And then that Christmas they were doing West Side Story 
a big new version hoping to transfer into the West End. And they asked me to be the pianist, not assistant MD. So I thought, West Side Story, that's so hard. That's so hard. And I was so naive, I said, oh no, I can't do that. But then I gave myself an hour, I got the score and I went to a, a, a rehearsal room that had a, a piano in it. And I just practiced one page for about 45 minutes, one page of the mambo, all that da 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 mambo. And literally I went upstairs, I said, how's the job gone? <laughs> and they went, it's only an hour ago. I went, I'll take it, I'll do it. So I did it and then I, practiced and practiced for all the months that I had, the summer months. And so by September, when we were starting to going to be rehearsing it, I knew it all. And I, I was literally playing West Side Story. And they had, the musical director was a famous guy, Grant Hossack. And the assistant was a walking cover. They brought in some, the, the orchestra didn't like him very much. And he wasn't the best of conductors. So they asked me to do it. I said, well, I've never conducted before. And they said, oh, be fine, I'll teach you the moves. And, you know, so where, I said, when? They said, next Wednesday matinee. <laughs> so I got, I remember doing it in my pajamas, having the, the cassette record of the whole show. I knew all the cues anyway, because I'd done all the rehearsals for five weeks. And so I conducted it and the orchestra applauded me at the end and they, they offered me the job and then it transferred into the West End. So in 1984, 1983, I first conducted it when I was 22. Um, Turns out I um, was the youngest person ever to conduct West Side Story, either on Broadway or on the West End. So I worked with some of the greats because I worked with Jerome Robbins, Lena Bernstein, Arthur Lawrence. And I, my career was just suddenly completely and utterly changing. And then we had a 22 piece orchestra and it went into Her Majesty's Theatre for a year, closed in 1985. And then came in, the, uh, came in Phantom of the Opera, and it's never moved. It's been there ever since. So <laughs> we were the last thing in there almost before Phantom opened. Uh, but then I got offered because it, once you can conduct, people look out, look out for you. So I'm 23 when I'm offered uh, uh, the pajama game, again back at Leicester Haymarket. I got offered musical director of that. And in the chorus of that was a young 16 year old girl, which is young for an ensemble member because normally you wait till they're 18, but this girl was Catherine Zeta-Jones. <laughs> and the Welsh, another Welsh. <laughs> the Welsh connection, and we got on so well, and we're still friends now. Well, we're back in touch because we were in touch for years, and then once she became Hollywood Dynasty, all the telephone numbers changed, yeah. so there was no communication, and then now we, when the lockdown happened last March, she got in touch with me, and now we're on WhatsApp, so we can chat and we're sending messages. And she set up this wonderful thing for performers to give them something to do. So she set up a whole thing where you could do a video and you know she would put it out and put it on her. So you would have hundreds of thousands of people yeah. seeing you yeah. doing something. So I set it up, I did it with her. And yeah, I mean, she did it for quite a few months, but we all did initially. So what we didn't... Yeah, I mean, it's, it, in, in lockdown, and I, I had a conversation with a cellist who yeah. in lockdown had been, well, obviously before lockdown had been so used to being in recitals with orchestras and other musicians. And then when lockdown yeah. came, was completely isolated. And so That's then true. he started, uh, I think it's front room concerts. And and now, you know, he's, put it, he's putting his music online. So is that something, obviously with those videos, is that something that you did or that you would? Yeah, 
I did. We did 12 episodes. I've got this group called the West Enders, which is a singing group. And we've been together quite a long time now. Uh, we set it up. They, we were all in, they were in Les Miserables together. And uh, we wanted to do something for corporate entertainment, which started off. And then we eventually did theatre tours and cruise ships, which we travelled the world. Whilst I was still doing a West End show, we get a two-week cruise come up. So I'd take two-week holiday and I'd be with my friends. Mm -hmm. And I'd find myself in... Uh, South America, you know, getting on the ship in Rio de Janeiro and doing the coastline there, Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, Montevideo, Chile, the Falklands, and we've done Africa, we've done Australia, we've done India, the Indian Ocean, uh, to South Africa, and it's, it's just, and Australia, with Tahiti. Who would have thought I'd ever end up in Tahiti? I bought the Port Albert. <laughs> you would never think of it, I think. I remember ringing my mother once because I was doing a gig on the back of a boat, uh, a very expensive 60 million pound yacht. And we were on the finishing line of the Grand Prix. And I was, uh, it was uh, a lovely guy who owned DFS Furniture. And we invited us to do the, the entertainment for the night before the Grand Prix and after the Grand Prix on his yacht. But we were going to stay in a place called Cap Ferrat, which is around the corner. So we, we go in this thing and I, I'm, I'm literally, oh, my God, this yacht is absolutely beautiful. It had a gym. It had a swimming pool, jacuzzi. It was enormous. And literally, I rang my mother and the, the uh, Lord Kirkham overheard me saying, oh, ma'am, thanks for those piano lessons. Because they really pay, they're really paying off. <laughs> I was with I was with the mayor of Nice was on this yacht with us and, and the, on the next yacht was Boris Becker smoking a big fat cigar and it was weird because the night before was party night it's so hard and the next boat to us was going do, 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 party and we were doing be our guest be our <laughs> guest for our service do, 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 do. <laughs> you couldn't make it up but the, the following day was the Grand Prix which was fascinating we were all right on the finishing line they take you about 50 meters from the shoreline because it the, the, comes around there you couldn't make it up and we were drinking um, crystal champagne and then Lady P she then said oh about the second day we've run out of crystal we have to go into Dom Perignon I'm so sorry <laughs> apologies <laughs> apologies how the other half live you know <laughs> oh, that's that's I saying. sometimes it's a joy you know playing the piano and I was always able to entertain if I go to someone's house and they've got a piano then I'm known for it and I would get on and suddenly there's no business like show business and all these show tunes and people join in and have a party. There's nothing like if someone's got a piano in their house. But I've been invited to parties because of that. And I know why I'm invited and I don't mind. I'll get the crowd going, you know, if it's a theatrical party. And I've got, I've got a piano. You can come to me. I've come to you. <laughs> yeah. uh, my daughter sits upstairs in lockdown she's been writing songs it's amazing can I just on the on the technical side of stuff because I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated how what's the difference between being a musician in an orchestra and the musical director is it because obviously unlike a director of theatre you're not on on the you are in the the, the orchestra pit performing yeah. as well aren't you so so what's the, yeah. what's the technicalities of, of being a musician well, the technicalities and every show is different but you know obviously we, we're in a rehearsal room initially with just a piano and I conduct the piano then we bring in piano bass and drums if we're lucky to get the rhythm section going then we have our orchestral rehearsals then we have the problem of getting into the orchestra pit depending what size it is 
And then we, everyone has to listen in different ways. And now technology has taken over. There's so much more. And health and safety, you have to have all this space between people. Um, so every musician has to follow me because I'm the link between the stage. So they're playing, if you're playing solo violin, or and there's six of you, say, well, this is in the, the good old days when you had a 27-piece orchestra, like when I did Beauty and the Beast, 27. I did the original Crazy For You, 27 in the orchestra. Uh, then I've, we've been brought down to 18 and now Phantom of the Opera is opening with 14, reopening. Wow. They're reducing the size, but they all rely upon me. I choose, I take the tempo, tempo comes from me. If my assistant goes on, sometimes things are slightly out, but I have a relationship with the stage, which I connect to the orchestra. And I'm an energetic conductor, enthusiastic. And if like crazy for you, which I, which your sister, your lovely sister was in, yes. Lisa, and... Um, we had a ball on that show because the music was so, you go, I got rhythm, ba -da -ba -da -ba, I got music. And you just, then there's a dance happens, a massive dance. And it's so exciting, but I have to drive the energy on. And that comes from me. And if they follow me, come on, let's go. So you were driving the show. You can just do that. And I've seen conductors do that. And I think, how can you just do that? But people say to me, how, it doesn't matter whether it's four musicians, 16 musicians, 20 or 80. So when I'm conducting classical, you know, if I'm doing an open or just any big orchestra, I've done Friday night is music night for the BBC. And that is a 60 piece orchestra and you've got a choir and you've got soloists and you're connecting the whole program. And the move that I make is how do 80 musicians, 60 musicians play the same thing at the same time? Because if I'm going, and that's the feel, and the, the feel comes from me and the expertise of the musicians that we're working with. As a conductor, you're responsible for them, you know, for the whole orchestra. I'm also responsible for the sound out front. So I'll do a show watch once a week to check that my assistant is doing uh, you know, similar to me, not the same because everyone's different. And then I'll check on the sound. And if there's things I think that, oh, we're missing this. What's happening to that? Can you please check the mic position? Because everything is mic'd up and, you know, all, as we say, different sections. If you've got three French horns, three trumpets, two trombones, you've got your rhythm section, you've got bits of percussion, obviously all different, all little toys that they play, whether it's obviously timpani and xylophone, glockenspiel, um, anything from a triangle to a wolf whistle, you know, it's, they just have so many things, but you want to make sure that you hear everything because it's all the color. And I, because I have a full score. So the full score means I've got every instrument starting at the top with the woodwinds, coming down to the French horns, coming down to the trumpets, then the trombones. Uh, and then we go to the percussion section in the middle, we've got the strings at the bottom, but every single bar, one, two, three, four, is a page that big, huge. I can't even get it on the screen, but it's so <laughs> big. And you're turning pages because it's all happening at the same time. And it used to be handwritten scores, which I always loved. But with the new scores, it's all now done uh, all notated in perfect form so you can see every single note uh, clearly because if someone's got good handwriting or bad handwriting you knew it you think what is that note they're meant to be playing because I can't read it but it's it's a the musical director's job starts off as you know when you're chosen you meet with the director and the choreographer and then we start auditioning and 
everyone wants their own. The director might, well, I like that person very much. And I said, well, oh, singing's a bit, hmm. And then dancing-wise, the choreographer wants the people that, that he or she wants, you know, uh, that whatever department we're fighting. And then we come down to the final auditions and then we negotiate as to where, well, I can't have everyone, I can't sing, no. you know, but it's going, so when I went going back to Cats, when I went in there in 1989, it had been running a long time. It opened in 1981 and no one was taking charge of it. Musically, it was just left to run. And we had booth singers, but five booth singers which covered all the harmonies because when it opened, there were only 12 channels of microphones and they used to wear them on their chest. And so certain choreography was, I remember in the opening, Bonnie Langford, for instance, there was a line at the beginning, are you blind when you're born? Can you see in the dark? And then someone would run down to a microphone that was on the front of the stage and go, can you see in, can you see in the dark? Or whatever, just for one line. And that became the choreography. And then over the years, sound developed and developed so we could have more channels. So everyone could have, because not everyone had microphones. And so you would give the microphones to the best singers. But yeah. then it came that we could have, everyone could have a microphone and then the pack, the microphone goes here. Yeah or here to the best position. And now the microphone packs, which used to be the size of a big, like a mobile phone, they're tiny and they can go in the girls' wigs. So going to Crazy For You, 1993, we had, girls had microphone packs in their wigs. So there were no wires going down the back to a, to a microphone pack, which is strapped to your waist. Yeah. That all started to change. And on Crazy For You, we came up with, the sound designers came up because there was so much tap in it. They wanted to make sure we could hear all the tap. So under the stage, embedded in the stage floor, were 60 microphones. And of course, put 60 microphones on, you get boom, 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 boom. You get all drumming. But once you equalize it and take all the bottom end out, then with the tap, you ended up tap, 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 So you got all these wonderful tap rhythms. So it's since I started, it's changed so much so much we've got so much more available that we can do and it's a different sound when you put a hat on if you've got a microphone here can you imagine putting on a trilby and the sound becomes different because you've got a, a lip that comes out here of the hat and then the sound becomes very boomy so they then designed they could have a mic pack a separate mic pack in the hat so you have so many channels available. So it would come onto the brim of the hat. So it wouldn't, it would be outside and you'd hear, oh, the things they do. Yeah. Quite, quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, changed so a lot. In your job as well, are you um, like in the rehearsal period actually working, I assume you must be working with the orchestra to, to get the sound right, to actually, yeah. yeah, direct it all? That's that part. Well, initially I would have taught all the cast members, all the harmonies and finding out which is the best way for it to sound, who's going to be sounding best on what lines, you know, and, you know, working with a choreographer. That's how we start. I remember saying to on, on Crazy For You, the wonderful Susan Stroman, who who choreographed it. And I said, do you mind when we're doing like a week five, people should all know their harmonies. and They should all be performing well. But if they're not, I want to stop them. Like she stops them all the time for dance. Get stop that. That's yeah. wrong. Get your arm there. Get your arm. In, get your wrist out. Do this. Get your leg in a different position. And I say, can I stop? And she went, of course. And she'd never been asked this before, but this was my idea, and I tried it out a few times. So I would stop, and she said, oh, okay. I said, girls, this is crazy for you. 
I said, you're, if the tune is holding hands at midnight, neath the starry sky, nice work if you can get it, and you can get it if you try. Well, the lower harmony line was, holding hands at midnight, neath the starry sky, nice work if you can get it, and you can get it if you try. I'm going, well, who wants that to sing? But you've then got to sing it with enthusiasm. So I said, look, girls, your faces are like this. Holding hands at midnight neath the starry sky. And it looks like, I said, you've got to make it holding hands at midnight and smile and give a performance. Don't forget, in this show, at this particular part in the show, you're actually dressed in a pink wig, a pink frock, pink little, you know, like, like tutu type outfits. They were actually called the fantasy bankers because they were part of the, the league I was a banker. So they, it's, it's just quite hard to believe. And I said, you know what? Think of yourselves. You're singing, you're performing in the West End. People do not want to see a dull face. And I said, there's nothing worse than a dull face in a pink wig. <laughs> yeah, so that's I got away with it. It was funny, but that's, that, oh God, we had, we've laughed about, we laughed about that a lot. My sister had the dummy mic. I don't think she was allowed to sing, was she? No, she was. She didn't have a dummy mic. No, they were all very good, all very well chosen. And we had, I mean, crazy for you, it's another, another big turning point. It was 1993, big turning point in my career. Uh, I got good reviews. I had a review outside the theatre saying, J. Alexander Powers, one of the best pit bands we've ever heard this side of the amazing. Atlantic. Yeah, it, it was. Truly it was wonderful. Amazing. I've not I've never seen a show like it. No, I know. I mean, we, we had um, a reunion, um, a, um, a Zoom reunion last year and it was absolutely delightful to see everybody and some people are doing very very different things but you know with if you get known again for that because Cameron McIntosh owned that theatre and I'd worked for him a few times since 1988 on Follies and then I did the original Putting It Together with Diana Rigg and Clark Peters in Oxford uh, and I did another show for him The Card and then he saw me conducting and he, he had a little seat at the side. He owned the theatre, the Prince Edward Theatre in Soho, Old, Com Old Compton Street. And he could come and watch. He had a seat on the side. And he watched. The next thing I know, I was offered Oliver, the London Palladium, because he wanted, like, energy to do Lionel Bart's score. And I thought, right, I'm in the back doing those with um, uh, Jonathan Price was playing Fagin. And it's funny, you know, you all the kids. I mean, I did it for two years. And then after that, I did another show that had children in it, which was Beauty and the Beast. I did at the Dominion Theatre, uh, which I believe you worked on. I did. I bought. I think I bought every single piece of trimming that went on any any costume there was. Yeah. Really, how fantastic! Oh, it's, it was a wonderful show. Very expensive show at the time. It opened in 1997, and it cost 13.5 million. Wow! And we had a massive orchestra, but. The, it looked and sounded amazing, you know, and obviously, again, with that, you know, you're teaching the whole score and the cast, but you're casting talented dancers because, oh, yes, you're going to be a fork. You're going to be a spoon. You're going to be a sugar bowl. You're going to be an egg timer. So does, you know, all the flatware coming out. But we had um, lovely Mary Miller was in that. Do you remember Mary Miller? She was in um, what's with Hyacinth Bouquet. Um, uh, keeping up, keeping up appearances. Yeah. She was our rose. She was the common tart, uh, but she played Mrs. Potts. Yeah. She was fabulous. 
And Norman Rossington was in it. He used to be in the Beatles films and things like that. But And Julia Ladder Brighton was Belle and Alistair Harvey was the Beast. But then we did it for a few years. We had John Barrowman as the Beast at one point, um, who was great, always a practical joker. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I did three years on that. It was a fantastic time. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, to go back to Oliver slightly, because I was... The- yeah. Didn't you go over to America with Oliver, or did you do? I did. I supervised. I supervised the American tour. We rehearsed in New York City for five weeks, and then we opened in Denver, Colorado. But being in New York City, I was like, "Oh wow!" I was there. I remember going to a Sunday because they had Sunday matinees. I remember seeing the original cast of Hairspray. I saw Wicked. I saw a preview of Wicked, so it hadn't even opened to the press. So Kristen Chenelworth was in it and um, Edina Menzel, absolutely brilliant to be on Broadway. I'm thinking I was literally, because we were rehearsing on 42nd Street, funny enough, because that's where the the new studios were, because they cleaned it all up, because 42nd Street used to be a dodgy area. But it's now called Disney's 42nd Street, I think, because they cleaned it all up and it's now a fabulous place with great rehearsal studios. Mm -hmm. I also did, I supervised the Australian production of Oliver, which was great. And I made some new friends out there and loved Australia, of course. And I'm getting paid to work, you know, two months in Sydney. Hello, nothing not to like about that. But I went back to years later, I did um, Guys and Dolls in the West End with um, McGregor, was playing Sky Masterson and Jane Krakowski, who's an American TV star and musical theatre star, uh, she was in it and we did this new production. It was fantastic. So then I get asked a year later, uh, are you available to go out to Australia to Melbourne this time and supervise the opening of Guys and Dolls there? And I'm like, yes, please. So this is a mm, part of the story. I, I had done Fiddler on the Roof in the West End at the Savoy Theatre for a year. It's a very long show, three hours long, and there's lots of dialogue breaks. And I in shows, I often do a crossword. People wonder what you get up to in the pit. <laughs> well, I love doing the evening standard crossword. Uh, never read a book because you get too involved and you might miss a cue. So I had um, one of the, the trumpet player was leaving and he'd worked with me for some years because he did, did a few shows with me. He did Guys on Dolls. That was two years. And then a year on Fiddler. And uh, he said he bought me a present and he bought me a nin- Nintendo DS Lite. Now, I would never because I don't have children. There's no way I would ever have this sort of thing. He said, I can't get you the game that you want, which was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And I've been playing that during the show, during the long scenes. And they get up and go, if I were a rich man, then back, back. Because something has to keep you going. And uh, so I learned to play poker. This is it, Texas Hold'em. So I go to Melbourne, which has the biggest casino in Australia, called The Crown. So I went there on the Saturday night. So we rehearse Monday to Saturday morning. We don't do an afternoon. And then that would be my night out at the weekend. I'd go and spend my pediums in the casino. And I, you could play this game, Texas Hold'em, against the casino. And on the fifth week I was there, I played. And I thought, I've got two low cards, an eight and a nine. But they're both hearts. So I play it. So I play. I play. But every game, someone had said to me, Always light up the jackpot, the yellow little button at the top. You've got to put $2.50 on it every game, just in case you get a good hand. Thank goodness I did. 
because I when they did the, some people who watch your program will be know this game. They get a three card flop, which the whole table share. So I had an eight and a nine, and I looked at them all. They were heart, so they were heart, heart, heart. So I had a flush. So I got that, and then I looked up at it, and this is on the flop because you got two more chances after that to get two more cards. And it was eight, nine, ten, jack, queen. I got a straight flush. And when they revealed the cards at the end, uh, they said, uh, can we call security, please? Call security. Sorry, they weren't American. Uh, they were Australian. Uh, call security. I said, why? Well, you've won. I said, I know. So I gave $25 to the two people sitting next to me as a little, I thought I won about 700. No, he said, you won 10% of the jackpot. I won $30,000. Wow. <laughs> more than a, I, oh my gosh. I remember ringing my mum and telling her, because the hours, of course, they're so far ahead of us, nine hours ahead or sometimes 11 hours ahead. I rang my mother and my mum used to work in a, in a betting shop. She hated the gamblers because she used to see men coming in, spending the, the housekeeper money, which they know the wives couldn't afford. But she kept stum. And when I told her, she went, have you been gambling? I said, ma'am, I've just won 30,000. I'll give you something. <laughs> it was funny. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. All the way back in Wales. So. Yes, all the way back in Wales. And I'm due to go, I'm going down for a wedding in October. It's been very difficult because obviously the Welsh um, rules are different to here and traveling into Wales. At one point they were asking us, do not, please do not come to Wales. We want to keep our little part of the yeah. country. Yeah. And Scotland the same, you know, uh, they've got their own rules. Yeah. Very, very different. And in England, well, today, of course, is Freedom Day. Where, yes, we are recording yeah. Freedom Day. And I literally, because I, I did two nights on a cruise ship last week. Yay! The first two nights work with our group, the West Enders. And we went on and we all had to be, we had been double jabbed. And then they did all lateral flow tests. So that all the passengers that were coming on, and it's a tryout of a brand new ship called the Spirit of Discovery. Beautiful ship. So we did two nights on there and we're going back again this week on Thursday and Friday, two nights again, but we're setting sail but we're only going as far as Portsmouth. So <laughs> then, then back to Dover, uh, but we just have two different shows to do. But yeah. it was so lovely to be back on a stage doing what we all love. And we're all friends, all of us. There's six singers plus the onstage orchestra, small orchestra, but uh, it's, we had standing ovations on, we did four, the same show twice on one night, same show twice the following night for different passengers because it has to be socially distanced and we had standing ovations on every show. We are also happy to be back. It's hard to, you know, it's, it's easy, singing in your lounge, you know, singing in the shower is not the same as having a reaction yeah. from an audience. And they all have to wear masks sadly, but I suppose that will, will eventually hopefully get past all of this. But the, in, in lockdown, the West Enders, you were saying what we did, you asked me earlier, we did a thing called Dr. Theatre. We did 12 episodes and we were all like funny things, some lovely moments and sending out to West End as uh, we have on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. And we had lots of people following us. And then um, we did a ch charity single just, just about six weeks ago or two months ago. Uh, we, did, we recorded One Voice, Barry Manless One Voice, saying we are all one voice you know mm. and the lgbtq got plus and black lives matter everything's all on the the t-shirts that we have and we're doing it to raise money for um the sussex beacon which is 
in Brighton, just outside of Brighton, and it's a hospice for HIV and AIDS. And, and well, actually not just, I think it's a hospice for, for everybody. And Jill, who is one of our um, West Enders, uh, there was a TV series that was on uh, the beginning of the year, <clears throat> but it was made last year in the beginning before lockdown. It was called It's a Sin, uh, which you might've heard of. So, yeah, and it, it's a, the lead character in it is called Jill. And it's based on Jill, our Jill, Jill Nolder, who is one of our West Enders. And so since, and then, so the girl playing her was Lydia West, but it was written by Russell T. Davis, who also was from West Glamorgan County Youth Theatre. So we met when we were 14 years old and we're all still in touch, but he wrote Queer as Folk and he brought back Doctor Who, famously, but he was the first person to make the, the Daleks elevate, you know? <laughs> so that was scary because we, we knew back in the seventies that, Oh, will it be all right? Because there's stairs, they can't get up the stairs. <laughs> but the Cybermen and Russell decided, because he and Jill have been friends for many years, very good friends. And he had been talking because her life in the 1980s was looking after young people with it and going to visit people with HIV and AIDS in hospitals. Because at that time, the life expectancy was only two years. Yeah. Fortunately, People are still alive now, but our um, lives then were very different. We cared for our friends and we found out that some people, it was such a stigma with it. But this program is five episodes and it's based on our Jill. And then Jill is in episodes four and five playing the mother of herself. Wow. So it became a big story. So suddenly Jill was on GM, um, Good Morning Britain with Ben Shepherd, and he was and then um, Women's Hour, She's done so many. She was doing three interviews a day at one point because people realized this is a real person's life it's yeah, based yeah. on. And it's based on our friends. And I have a bit of me in there too. Yeah. And, you, uh, you were saying you lived at the Pink Palace. Yeah, well, the Pink Palace was the place that they, Russell loved the name. We had a flat. <clears throat> there was nothing like the one in the TV show. We found it when we were students and it was 80 pounds a week in 1980 then it was. And... The Pink Palace, we thought it was going to be a dump. It was in Ham West Hampstead. And it, we walked in and I went, whoa, gosh, it's beautiful, very glamorous. It was like um, a lovely late, your auntie's house and like that with, with, uh, uh, with pink velvet, dusky pink yeah. curtains and a lovely Draylon, which was at the time, Draylon sofa, which is semicircular in a bay window overlooking gorgeous gardens. And it had real crystal chandeliers and it, it was so posh for students. I mean, but it was 80 pounds. And so it was 20 pounds each a week. And our grant was only 25 pounds a week, I think. But we, we afforded it and we lived there. And we had so much fun. We had parties there. I'd hired a piano in so I could practice piano. And it was just the best place to be and loads of people. And then Russell, of course, was at Oxford University. So he loved to come down to London and stay at the Pink Palace. So he decided to use that name for the place they all lived in. But it looked, that looked a much shabbier place than what we had, well, we had glamour. You were, you were like proper posh. Proper posh. People couldn't believe when they came to our, our flat in West Hampstead and it was in NW3, you know, and, Wow, people say this is gorgeous. Because first of all, we went, oh my God, it's like a palace. It's like a palace. And then someone said, and it's pink. So we called it. <laughs> and so many students at the time from the Central School of Speech and Drama, and Jill was training at Mount View Theatre School. Oh, I went to Mount View. 
Oh, you did. Oh, there we go. Great school. I've only taught them. I've taught them occasionally over the years. But yeah, it was, uh, Russell decided that would be called the Pink Palace. And then when Jill went to the first day of uh, the read-through, we were actually on holiday in Portugal when she got the job. And they, she flew over to do the read-through in Manchester because that is the only time you get the whole cast together round a table and read it. And then Russell started it off and he, he said, look, I'm very... This has taken me two years to write and help me, my guidance and the person, be, you know, about all this is Jill and she's here. And everyone's, everyone's going to, oh my God, you're Jill. You're the real Jill. This is all about, this is your life. And, you know, everything is so much has happened to her since then. She's been, she was on Portrait Artist of the Week. <laughs> you know, oh my goodness. It was uh, with Joan Bakewell. So yeah. great program, I, I'd never seen it before, but they did an artist and thousands of people around the country and around the world did portraits, uh, put in a portrait of a, some were a bit odd, but the majority were fantastic. And we've got three of them here. And I said, enough. I said, where's me? Where's me? Because Jill and I have uh, lived together for 42 years and um, not as partners, as best friends. You know, and it's worked. We, so we've we've lived in London, and uh, we have this cottage up in the country. So we've, at the, because of the pandemic, we've to earn some money, we've uh, you know, rented out our place in London. Oh, didn't think it'd go. Who thought we'd still be here? This all this time later. Uh, but that's been a bit of a lifeline. And work is, you know, I was doing March the sixteenth in in twenty twenty. I started rehearsals for the new Sister Act. And it's a new version of it. So we started rehearsal on the 16th and I got sent home on the 17th. Two weeks wages, thank you very much. But that year was meant to be so good for me because I was then, when the, the show would open in Leicester and then tour, and then when it was on tour in, in Manchester, so in, uh, in June or July, I was meant to fly to New York for two weeks, for two weeks to work with Whoopi Goldberg, Jennifer Saunders, oh, hello. <laughs> what sort of a year was that gonna be? Whoopi! And apparently she only wanted to work four days a week. So the rest would be enjoying what New York City has to offer. Yeah. And suddenly nothing, nada. And uh, then it was postponed for a year. So we should have started this June. And the producer said, <clears throat> I don't think it's right. I can't, and, and look what's happening. So now they've postponed it to June next year. So I have to wait another year. So I, I think I might have to become a plumber because they seem to be taking a lot of money off me. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah. We're not ending here, just taking a quick break to remind you that you're listening to Power to Speak, the podcast, with my guest musical director and conductor, Jay Alexander. And there will be more stories from Jay later, but first we hear from our friend, fellow podcaster and storyteller, Stefano Capacchione, who reminds us how to make magic with words, create and connect. The story I'll, I'll read for you the once with three little girls. This is a dream that I think really shows how we view transformation. Dreams, emotions, empathy, connection, stories. Storytelling with Puck. Find your next tantalizing tale on your favorite podcast platform or at puckcreations.com forward slash storytelling with Puck podcast. Thanks, Stefano. Now back to Jay. So what have you been doing then um, for your own sanity 
in lockdown. Well, obviously, creativity-wise, it, it, it's you know you you have this uh, this amazing ability to be creative, and you're living with uh, another fantastic creative. You've got the West Enders. So yeah. has, has that helped with sort of just keeping you sane during lockdown? Well, it did keep us sane. But when we came up to the cottage here, and we hadn't really been here for four years, and we did it all up. We painted it from top to toe and cleaning it all out and making it um, a very beautiful, well, it's an 18th century cottage, thatched, and it's in a lovely little village near Grafham Water. It's in Cambridgeshire. <clears throat> and uh, we've had now, since we've done it up, we have friends, you know, from another household can come and stay for a few nights. We just have two people who come and stay. And yeah, but ha having done this place up, it's now, it's looking great, looking absolutely great. and. Yeah, we've redone things, new sofas, new beds. The, the garden is a third of an acre. So out there, and I've also built a huge natural pond. This, <laughs> I've had, I had a man with a digger, but it's six meters by five meters. So it is huge. Wow. And That's we have ducks. We have, it is a lake, but it, we have, we've had two ducks called Dick and Doris. And they come in occasionally, but we've now got frogs, newts, beetles, water snails, and it's and it's starting all to grow and it's coming, the lilies are coming out. And but that we did back in February, and that was a big mission, big mission, getting all the lioness in and buying all the stuff and cutting everything. But because the digger man did it, but then we had to do all the extra, like smoothing it all off and making contours and making shelves so you can put your plants around the side. That's been a huge project, um, I have to say. So that's just taken up quite a bit of time. Yes, they're very creative. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, so when do you, do you envisage getting back into a space to actually perform? Well, I'm... It's the cruise, it's the cruise ships. It's the, well, the cruise ships, we hope, will, you know, be able to take us on because, you know, we've done this week, as we've said, two shows and then two days, two nights, and then next week, two, two, we just, it's all just, but we only got that booking on Tuesday. And we were on the ship on Friday. We're trying to get, I said, oh, are you available? Are you available? Because we've got about 16 boys we can choose from. Yeah. But on the three, main, majorly our three girls, Linda, Frances, and uh, Jill, of course, uh, they're our main mainstay. So they know all the permutations of our shows. The boys, sadly, we, do, we should have had one tenor, two baritones. I couldn't get a tenor, couldn't <laughs> get a tenor. So there's three baritones, so we just adjusted things and that worked brilliantly. So we just had the theatres uh, will open up more and more. I think people are still a bit cautious, but also it's, it's the fina financial side of it. If you can only play to 50% capacity, how on earth can people make them, their money back? And the small, you know, some of the regional theatres, you know, getting the, the, the charging people, and you can only have, a third of an audience in, say it is, it's not 50%, but it'll start to open up when well, it is opening up. So they can yeah, have, so hopefully now, you know, we have an agent for that, for the West Enders doing, like we do Warner Leisure, where we go down very well, where they do a weekend of musicals and we'll be on that. And then we'll do the theatres and then we've got an agent for that. And then we have an agent that also does, does for the cruise ships. So, and he's going, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying. And it's just starting. The confidence of people, you know, will start to grow. And, you know, I know it's like even down to religion, um, religious events, funerals, weddings, you know, people have been, it's, I've, I've, done, I've watched a few funerals online 
because I can't go. You know, my auntie died of COVID. She was 99 and she didn't know she had it. And she gave it to everybody because they all went around to say happy 99th birthday. But, but everyone else was fine with it. They didn't get they didn't get any symptoms. Then so fine, but sad for her at 99. It's one of those weird things. It seems to get some people and not others. Yeah, so. yeah. It's it is a, a bizarre disease. It really is. And um, but I was looking at obviously other things that you do. The the classical side of things, you know, and the, and the outdoor events where you can have an audience of up to like six thousand people. And more. I tell you, it's funny. I was doing. I started them when someone asked me to conduct a classical concert. Um, a friend of mine, uh, who was violinist, he, and I said, I've never done the proms, sort of thing. You know, these are popular. It's called um, classical spectacular, and so I did one the first year, and they said, right, we want. They gave me six the following year. So, and one of the ones I did was I've done things like Castle Howard, uh, Harewood House up in Leeds. Uh, Belton Abbey and Colk Abbey, which is Derbyshire, Battle Abbey. Uh, I used to do loads. And uh, the <clears throat> Castle Howard, I took over that with our orchestra, the English National Orchestra, of which I'm principal conductor. And we started off with 6,000 the first year because they'd had a bit of a bad time with the, the, the conductor was quite famous and he didn't want to do all the fun and or the encores which go with this sort of concert. So they got us in and we came in with a Spitfire. We had a World War II Spitfire doing a 10 minute aero display which we would play all the World War II themes, you know, like da 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 633 Squadron and the Battle of Britain March and people just love it. And then we would have a tenor and a soprano and we do all the, your famous classical stuff and also some uh, film music. So I started the first year at Castle Howard with 6,000 people the following year, 12,000 wow. people. It was unbelievable and beautiful summer weather. The weather was gorgeous. And so we were getting a walk up on the day. But over the past years, our weather has been so unreliable. Yeah. You know, we promise, you know, you just get, we were getting rained upon. So the producers, it takes 4,000 people in an audience for a classical concert with a 70 piece orchestra, fireworks, big stage, big sound system. Uh, I mean, it's you need 4,000 people to break even. And that was affected as well by health and safety because that put the cost up enormously yeah. for security guards and all of this. And oh, goodness me. You know, it's so sad that we can't have that yeah. still. Perhaps next year things will happen. But, you know, I was told my stuff was cancelled. All my things have been cancelled this year. Yeah. Um, they're not have the concerts aren't happening. Mm -hmm. So we just have to hope yet another year goes by. And um, we'll be in a better place. I mean, I, I feel elated just having done two days work. Some people, of course, have been able to work from home if they've got that type of job. Then, you know, they can be office workers and they've got their, their computers out. They're all linked up. Yeah. No, now, if you ring anywhere, you don't know where you're going to be. And you can hear a dog barking in the background. So, you know, they're not in an office and you've waited half an hour yeah. to get a response. Yeah. And all suddenly the... The call disconnects. Yeah, they've been you making know. dinner. They've been making a cup of tea. Yes. I started um, all my, I was teaching uh, drama and classes and I was in right. schools doing workshops. And again, yeah, all kind of stopped. So I started a podcast. <laughs> well, that's a great idea. I wish I, I wish I had that. I've had, you know, I, 
I did a podcast the other week about musicals and we were talking about people that you work with over the years. You know, I was lucky enough, my goodness, in some charity shows that I did, I, I played the piano for Jane Russell. Uh, you know, Jane Russell, Catherine Grayson, the f famous for the movie of Showboat, you know, and uh, you just think, oh my gosh, Van Johnson, Dolores Gray, uh, Alice Faye, uh, the Nicholas brothers, who were two wonderful dancers. Oh my God, these concerts called Stairway to the Stars. Rita Marino, who was Anita in, in West Side Story, I played the piano for her for rehearsals and then conducted bits. I did Hello Dolly in concert at the London Palladium with more dollies than you've ever seen, different dolly. So, and the most famous one being Carol Channing. Oh, God. And I conducted Carol Channing doing her uh, Hello Dolly number the big with all waiters and we had 40 waiters all in the regalia for the number we had then before the parade passes by we had cheetah rivera the wonderful cheetah rivera and we had that then she did before the parade passes by and then we had the band of the welsh guards the scots guards all coming in to the palladium auditorium i'm thinking i'm this is wonderful but when carol channing met me She'd obviously learned my name because it's not spelled J-A-Y, J Alexander, it's J-A-E. And so she went, J-A-E, that's a very nice name. Very lovely to meet you. That was a great impression. Well, an Eartha Kid, when I did Follies with Eartha Kid, she came into the show and she said to me, you have to mouth the words with me through my song. I said, what? You have to mouth the words. So she was singing a song, a song called I'm Still Here. Basically, it's like, so I knew the song, obviously. Good times and bum times. I've seen them all and my dear, I'm still here. And it's quite a lengthy song. So I, she's on the stage there in a beautiful gold, gold beaded outfit, looking sensational. And she's singing and I have to mouth the words. So I'm going... Sometimes I've seen them all. So I'm there. And the next thing, about three weeks later, I find myself doing it like her. I was in there, I'm going, good times, and bum times, I was a all and mighty. I ended up being a go with the kit. But yeah, oh gosh, you don't know the things. But Lulu, oh gosh, I worked with Lulu in 1987 doing a, a musical called The Mystery of Edwin Drood at the Savoy Theatre, and Ernie Wise was in it. It was just after Eric Walkman died. So I was working with Ernie Wise and Lulu. Wow, what a time that was. And then in, I, when I did 42nd Street, um, Drury Lane, it was a massive production, the new version of it, which had 57 people in the cast and 19 in the orchestra, it was massive. But we had Sheena Easton to open it. And Sheena, wow, what a voice she's got. You wouldn't believe she's got a brilliant soprano voice. And then I get this text a strange text when obviously she's leaving, saying, so looking forward to working with you again, lots of love, kiss, or an emoji. I thought, who's this? And then she, she obviously had no response from me. I don't know, wherever it could be. And she said, Jay, it's Lulu. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I went, oh my God, we're going to be back together again after 30 years. So it was like, we had, and she, we, you know, the moment we saw each other, that's the thing about, working in theatre, it's like it was yesterday yeah. that you work, because you have such, oh, because you're doing something very special. It's only, you know, you are there creating it, doing it. And Lulu came into the show for, um, I think about four or five months. And then we had the amazing Bonnie Langford who came into it. And Bonnie was terrific. Oh my gosh. 
she's an incredible star. Yes, yeah, I remember watching her when I was a child. I mean, yeah. she was, a, and she was a child too. Yes. Um, yeah, and I can't remember, was it Junior Showtime or something? Uh, she, she did Junior Showtime. And also she was known then, well, she got most annoying for her part as oh. Violet Elizabeth. You know, I should scream, scream, scream. Yeah. Well, I think that's what it was. But, you know, now, I mean, Bonnie is like such a consummate performer. She's just, she can do all three. She can sing, she can dance. Dance brilliantly. She's still in the warm ups, you know, you have a dance warm up and her leg would go behind. I thought, how are you still doing that? I mean, she's a little <laughs> bit younger than me, but still, she was in the original Cats in 1981, you know, so she, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, before we finish up, I mean, and it has been an absolutely amazing conversation just to hear you talk. You need to write a book. <laughs> Jill's writing a book at the minute. I think, no. It's. <laughs> Well, you, I mean, you've been together, you know, living together for 42 years. There yeah. must be sort of parallels. Could you not write a book in parallel? Yeah. I mean, with she's thinking of her next book. You couldn't make it up. It might be a title because some of the situations we find ourselves in working in theatre, you think you couldn't make this up. No. There's, you know, I've seen people being nearly killed on stage because of sets just not working or not in the right place at the right time. And you, you just couldn't make it up. People don't realise when you're doing a technical aspect of a show, it's all new yeah. and it's machinery yeah. and it's, it's, you know, hydraulic lifts. It's everything. And you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're in trouble. Yeah. Well, no, I remember that Beauty and the Beast. There was a, there was a hell of a lot going on in that, if I remember rightly. There was, there was, there was, um, uh, there was a fight between the Beast and Gaston and the, the parapet was meant to meet up with, so his, what they call the, the, he's in the tower and yeah. then a big walkway comes over and attaches to it. They're having the fight on the balcony. And then Gaston is meant to throw the beast over onto the, the parapet. He's, he's meant to wait and see it there. He didn't, he was just, oh, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be there. Always going to, threw him over, doof, dropped down 17 feet to his knees. And the music, I was playing, fighting music, there's thunder and lightning, crashing, crashing. And then I went, and then the music went, silence in the audience. And I thought, oh my God, right, what's happened? They brought the curtain in, and he was sent to hospital, sent to hospital. You know, and then the understudy took over to finish the show. So all happened, but you never ever know. There was also one where Chip, who was the cup and saucer, and he's in an illusion as a, he's on a, on a trolley, a little trolley, and all the cast are turned upstage facing the backstage while they're singing a song and they're watching Belle and the Beast in the library, all looking, studying, he's reading, she's reading to him about King Arthur, I think. And it's all fast, it's all lovely. And it's in the middle of a song, but it's, it's a quiet moment in the middle of it. And the girl is holding the, the trolley and the, the stage is what we call raked. So it's on a slant and it started to roll. And I'm, I went, oh my God, what? I've got watch out down there. <laughs> it fell and the, there was a big net over the pit and it fell, it would have nearly taken out the bassoon player because his bassoon, it would have gone straight, if it hit him, you know, you know with a mouthpiece yeah. on an instrument, could just smash your mouth. But they caught him, because I alerted, 
And the next thing we know, I jumped out of the centre of the pit and I was holding on to the little boy and he said, oh, I'll be fine. Then the stage of management came around. We think the audience were watching that thing. What on earth? It's just like, it was a poor little boy. He's only about eight years old. God, no. the things that happen. We no. could go on for days. We, we could. <laughs> we could. And, and you know what, what fascinates me and what I've been trying to come back to is this yeah. thing about... Uh, West Glamorgan and all these, you know, uh, what is it about West Glamorgan that has created all you, you, you fabulous performers and creators? Well, at, you know, um, well, a guy called Godfrey Evans created the West Glamorgan County Youth Theatre and we used to go on courses and, do, you know, I remember doing the back eye of Euripides when I was 13, 14, just, you know, in the chorus, whatever, but in the Greek chorus. And then they were doing West Side Story and I was doing sound effects or whatever. And then we did Pia Gint and we did Bernstein's Mass, which Bernstein's Mass, we did that as part of an arts programme. So it, it was the West Glamorgan County Youth Orchestra, the County Youth Dancers and the County Youth Choir. So we had a choir and then, then all these street singers of soloists, 42 soloists, and I was lead rock singer. The opportunity, we did it at the Brangwyn Hall in Swansea with a hundred piece orchestra, 200 in the choir, 40 soloists all did little bits throughout and it's mass, it's a mass. And it's, it goes through the life of the, the confusion of his religion and, and uh, as the, 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 the priest. And it's, it's very rarely done. And at that time it, it was written for the opening of the Kennedy Center in 1971-72. And uh, we did it in 1978-79, so not long after. And we did the Brangwyn Hall Swansea, and then we took it to the Wembley Conference Centre, and we did it there for the Year of the Child, I think it was. But the opportunities that we were given, and Welsh being very, we sing a lot, and people wonder why the Welsh sing, and it's because we have such a sing-songy voice, we, people will go, he, now, he went down to the shops, and he got the wrong thing. He didn't. Yes, he did. And there some women be talking like that. <laughs> I, I sent him out for I sent him out for bread, and he came back with a. You know, I wanted a sliced loaf. He came back with a batch. I never did. Yeah, it's all terrible, terrible. So the people use their voices. Yeah. That's probably the worst story I could possibly give you. But never mind. So sing-songy voices, and also in the Welsh language, which obviously is a very different language. And people, if they go to Wales, you see all the signs are in two languages, and. Um, but the, they sang in Welsh uh, chapels. They sang in tonic solfa, so do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. And or in the hymns, underneath each word, in harmony, was your line. So you'd go, do, oh, yeah, do, 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 fa, fa. But then you'd go, um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then they'd, it'd be in four parts, perfect harmony, all written underneath each note, so you'd have you'd be either on Ray or and in whatever key you did it in, and it, it was fascinating. And I've got um, some of these hymn books from grandparents. Yeah, and I think that's why they were able to sing. And the miners love singing. Yeah, you know, and people used to stay on holiday in the UK, and they used to have the miners' fortnight. And the miners' fortnight holiday was the pits were closed, and they used to you'd go to. I'd be working singing perhaps in a working men's club, and uh, they would all be singing along, they'd sing in Welsh, and it was just known as a value of song. But Paul Tolbert, particularly where I'm from, Richard Burton, Anthony Hopkins, Michael Sheen, the latest day, and Rob Bryden, uh, many people, Jill, and uh, my friend Gareth Snook, we, had all, we were all from Paul Tolbert, and I don't know 
Harwin, a lot, quite a few rugby players uh, came out of Port Talbot. And my father was in school with Richard Burton. And I never, I thought oh, every son in Wales tells him that I was in school with Richard Burton until I met Richard Burton's brother. And this was in about 1984 in Spain. He happened to be staying in the same hotel I was. And he went, are you Alan's boy? <laughs> I went, yes. He said, I was in school with your father, me, Richie, your uncle Dilwyn. Yeah. And I'm going, blinking heck. And then the Richard Burton diaries came out some years ago. And my father is in there, 1942. They went to the same chapel, went to the same school. And then he, there's things that they played um, again. They said, oh, went over to, this is Richard Burton writing, went over to Uncle Will's the other day, played the same game as usual. I came first, Alan second, my father's mm -hmm. Alan. And I look at the bottom, you know, in the, in this, in the notes, it said the game they were playing was 1942 Monopoly. Uh, nothing changes. Nothing changes. But I, could, I my father, but my uncle, um, my father's uh, best man, actually, Raymond, Uncle Raymond, he's in there in the book loads. My father's just about one, one or two chapters, but they used to love cinema together. And he used to go to the cinema with Richard Burton. And my uncle Dilwyn stayed in touch with Richard Burton until he died. Always did. Never felt. But my father, stupidly, no. didn't he lost contact <laughs> but anyway so yes a lot has come out of Port Talbot and I don't know why perhaps it's because you've got you know you've got three miles of golden sand on the sea you've got you got the steelworks on one side and the BP on the other side so I think it's perhaps it's a desperation to perhaps get out yeah. although it's a fantastic fantastic place you know when you're living so where you're brought up is all you know but full of wonderful people who are caring people a caring community town so yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and obviously church and performance, and it just seems like maybe that was just something that you were all kind of used yeah. to performing, or if you, you know. Exactly, I mean, um, you know, I was brought up playing the piano from the age of six, and then I, we spoke about this, I think, but uh, and then playing the organ in the church, and then uh, developing from playing the cathedral organ and doing all my exams with all the big pedal board, but people don't understand the pedal board. You see this huge, it's like, uh, well, hang on, one octave, two. It's basically two octaves, so of bass notes, and, and you're playing with heel toe, heel toe, and you get so you do the what they call the, the sharp notes, you know, the black, the black notes, or and the, the white, they're all coloured the same. But you learn to do all this footwork down below where no one can see, and then you've got pistons where you press your foot, and then stops come out, and you, bigger sound. Um, I've actually played the organ at the Albert Hall. And I, I wasn't meant to, but I was, I, was, <laughs> I was conducting a concert there. And I thought, oh, I've done many concerts at the Albert Hall. And most famously, I did the, I loved it. I was asked to do the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in 2012 at the Albert Hall with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, Russell Watson, uh, the Military Wives, the Royal Choral Society. And for instance, I'd never conducted God Save the Queen. And suddenly I found myself doing the fanfare with all these trumpeters going, God save It was the last concert my mother saw me do. And it was amazing. And there's some video footage online of it, because there was someone in the audience, wasn't meant to be, but she was videoing bits of it. I didn't even know she was there and she's a friend of mine, and she videoed the whole thing of all those waving flags. What an atmosphere, and I've got it on video because normally I wouldn't have anything, but it's great. Because now with our phones, they're so small, you can sneak it in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, amazing. What, I mean, what a life. How, how lucky have you been? Well, not- Very, very lucky. 
I've, you know what, I have been very lucky and I've worked with some wonderful people and, and great orchestras, musicians, you know, and we all care about each other. That's the main thing. And the outpouring on place, obviously Facebook and Instagram we're in touch with, and everyone's caring about what we're all going through at the moment. And it's all over the world, you know, in America, Broadway opening up, the West End opening up, it's starting to open up as soon as one person gets COVID. Yeah. Ah, that's it, shut down. So it's all still a little bit up in the air as to when we'll get back to normal. Yeah. And also, you know, with me doing Sister Act, that's now cancelled until next year. So, so I'll, yeah, I think I've got a, a lot of hobbies to try and start doing. Yes. Well, is there anybody, any way that you want to kind of connect with people through this? Just oh, I would love to. If, if there are people, you know, who need um, advice on perhaps being, it's a difficult time for anyone to do it, but be starting to, to become a musical director, to become an assistant musical director uh, as to how, what the job entails. I can't tell anyone how to get a job at the moment because I can't even get one because it's, it will be, if anything is going to happen, it's going to be last minute and we're doing this and it starts next week because things have cleared up. I can't see at the moment, uh, my job obviously, as we said with Sister Act, will open next June and we hope that we're all in a better place by then. Uh, and we'll have to be vaccinated again. I can see this being part of our lives. Yeah. But like yeah. we have the flu vaccine, we'll now be having the COVID-19 vaccine. And, uh, and uh, yeah, let's get back. I mean, yeah. but we have to be safe about it. Everyone's losing a fortune. The West End is dead. The restaurants are closed. You know, Covent Garden is quiet. It's I went up last year, I'd say a year ago then, I remember driving up, Jill and I drove up to the West End in about April, and we were the only people in Covent Garden. It was like something out of a science fiction movie where everything's got wrong and people have been exterminated. It was, gosh, really no one there. And Drury Lane has now been done up, and I, want, I can't wait to go and see it, because Frozen is going to open there, Disney's Frozen. I wish I was conducting that, but I'm not. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, goodness knows if all will go to plan, but they've just spent millions redoing Drury Lane because it hasn't been done so many years. It's many, many, many years, but they've actually put elevators in. Oh, wow. This is I'm here, yes, and more toilets. Yeah. More toilets for the ladies, especially, <laughs> who always seem to spend the interval queuing for the loo. Oh, well, it's been great talking to you today, Jay. I've mean, I put, I put here, uh, Jay Alexander One, and I know, I think that's your Instagram. That's my Insta, yeah, Jenna's under one. And I think it's, it's the same on Twitter. Yeah, just put same on the, Twitter. With the at at the beginning, I think. With it, yes. I, well, I think yes, at, I don't know, Jenna's under one, just a letter one, figure yeah. one. Yeah. Um, yeah, be nice to hear from you. If people have any questions, then please do. Lovely. And, it's, and I love the idea of, uh, of helping young people to, to know how, what the steps are to get into to musical direction. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as I said earlier, there is no right or wrong way. You will find your way. And it's, it has to be your love, yeah. it has to be your passion, and you have to have communication skills. Communication skills are very, very important uh, as to how you make something work. How do you get the best out of an actor if they're struggling? If they're a major star and they're struggling, you have to look after them and think, right, how can we, I want to make you sound fantastic, right? But some, some bits are, right, we'll change, change a little bit, I can change the key easily, and they'll go, oh, just that one semitone down, what a difference it can make to, you know, for any person, whether they're whatever age they are, the voice changes, obviously, as you get older. 
And so you want things brought down a bit, but it, it, they can act through that. And just a little bit of a um, key change happening will make them so much happier, so much confident in their role. Yeah. And, you know, when you're having rehearsals for anything, have fun. Yes. But it's a joyous process, creating harmonies, creating the sound, and say, well, that's not right. Let's try you on this, because, yeah. you know, you, that's not you. I feel you're going to be more better. You'd be better on the top. Yeah. Then yeah. someone in the middle, you know, and then swap it around, swap it around until you get the, the, the right sound that you're looking for. Yeah. You know? yeah. No, whenever, whenever I'm working on, on anything before the, you know, students go on for a performance, I always say have fun. That's that's for me is, is the whole point. But also just very, very quickly before we finish yeah. uh, the communication thing you said there. Do you do you think that communication is is one of the reasons that you've gone from job to job, I mean, obviously talent notwithstanding, because obviously you have oodles of it, but just in terms of, of working continuously, would you say to young people that they need to, to communicate to, to be able to get on with people and, and work in, in, in the theatre in that, in that way? Definitely, definitely. And get off your laptops and actually be when we can be with this has been a strange time but before that i would say to people stop it watch the rehearsal watch how a director is communicating learn and then learn from how that actor or actor you know is is taking from that and make ah oh, okay i see because the director can see out front watching it all and the relationship between one character and another and where you're spaced on stage learn the craft even if you're conducting, whatever you're doing, learn the craft, learn about the stage management, what they have to do when you're doing a, a scene change and it's not going right, slow it down. Don't just play the music as it is, change it. Because you can change it in performance by your demonstrating of something to slow it down and then the land sets. Then, so everything, you've got to take in everything being a musical director, what you hear around you, you know, all the in different instruments and if you're getting the right sound out of them and communicating that to them is very, very important. But as for working with people on a one-to-one -one basis, one to 10 basis, one to 40 people, teaching them, enjoy it, make it a good experience for them and you'll get more out of them completely. And I know something might be a challenge initially and I'll say, someone would say to me, but it's way too high. And I go, darling, it's just a short visit up to that top B flat. You'll soon be off it. <laughs> We'll get it. We work around it. Exercise and exercise the vocal cords, you know, to an actor and to, to pianists, obviously, and to any instrumentalist. Keep working your skills up, develop your skills. And because it's all changing. Yeah. Since I started, there was no, when I started, but there was just a piano. There was no such, there were synthesizers, but we didn't really use them in orchestras until about 1985. And I remember me and my girl having a synthesizer. It was polyphonic, so it only played five different notes at one time. And it was ridiculous. It was just, wow, okay, five notes. Now we've got the world at our fingertips. You yeah. can have fake this, you can have wonderful samples of things, but there's nothing better than the real thing and expression, learn to express and, and conducting skills. You know, you can't just go one and two and three and four. Learn how to be able to adjust it to every single singer and let them breathe. An actor has to breathe and you have to think how they are acting it and they will oh, I want to give that a bit more and then you'll come to them and 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 you'll be with them then they go oh you get the thanks and then you'll be go oh thank you thank you so much that just made it so much better yeah you are a partnership partnership and that's good advice I think to anybody make yeah. sure you listen to the singers not just you 
Yeah. They are the, they are the performer. We are the accompaniment, and we will just make it one, make it one together, make it good. Enhance. There we go. Absolutely. Oh well, that was a perfect place to end there, Jay. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I should, my oh. my sister will really enjoy watching this back because I know. Uh, yeah. Well, I say hello, Lisa. Yay. <laughs> She'll know all the crazy for you stories about the pink wig and a dull face and a pink wig. She'll oh. know all that. <laughs> yeah. What an amazing career Jay's had. Takeaways from Jay's amazing life for me were get off your laptop and learn your craft. Always take time to appreciate where you are and where you've come from. But most of all, do what you love. What were yours? Connect with me on LinkedIn or contact me through the website powertospeak.co.uk and let me know. Life is full of inspiring stories just like Jay's. So if we've put you in the mood for more, then don't forget to check out some tantalising tales and magical moments from Storytelling with Puck. Find them where you find your favourite podcasts or head over to puckcreations.com forward slash storytelling with Puck podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, then please leave a five-star review on whichever platform you're on. And if you'd like to receive information about future guests or would like to know more about Power to Speak coaching, then sign up for our fortnightly newsletter at powertospeak.co.uk. Bye for now.